You're listening to Comedy Central. What did you think when you saw him coming up with a... Uh, well, he was telling us that it wasn't loaded, so that was a good I think he says he... Is, is, is the gun loaded? No, he said it was. No, my, my gun's got ammo in it. We carry it like the police carry it. But you're not the police. But you're not, yeah. Well, that's just it. There's really no distinction between the police and the citizenship other than their general training and permits to do so. Training, though, is one thing. Why keep it loaded right now? Because if somebody, uh, Islamic terrorist, whatnot, crazy guy... Islamic terrorist? What's your expectation? Do you fear that's going to happen right now? Just because you're walking around with a gun on your side, don't make me oh, say it. It, it just doesn't look right, right. in society. And, and to be fair, you're passing this out because you want more rights, because you feel you're I not... want a greater restoration of rights. So you don't have enough. You're walking around a parade route like John Wick, and you're like, I want more. That is me, Jordan Klepper, at a parade in Gonzales, Texas. I'm facilitating a conversation between a concerned parade goer and an open carry gun rights activist. They were carrying their guns out of the open. They were big guns, and they were advocating for the idea of constitutional carry. And across the state in Dallas was my friend Kobe Labee, and he was with a group called Gorilla Mainframe. And they are a group of black activists who are drawing attention to the cause of police violence towards the African-American community. We decided to go out on this day to see how people reacted to both of these groups, to see if race played into this at all. Spoiler alert, it does. It's a really interesting episode for us, and I'm inviting my friend Kobe Luby on to talk about it. We both had different experiences, but we were making one show, and we saw some of these things from different perspectives. And it wasn't always easy. One state, two protests, and a conversation around guns and racism in America. This is Clapper. I'm always trying to get rid of the shock factor of seeing a gun. I think people have been conditioned, oh gosh, there's a guy with a gun, I'm gonna call 911. That's a good condition. Well, is it? When I see somebody going to church, I don't call the police and say, hey, they're exercising their First Amendment rights. Yeah, well, people and, aren't getting killed with churches around the country. Well, some people are getting killed in churches. <laughs> yeah, with guns. Yeah. CJ is the founder of Open Carry Texas a group that wants to normalize the sight of people carrying guns into Chipotle and loosen Texas gun laws. They've been effective. In 2016, OCT successfully lobbied the state to legalize licensed open carry of handguns. Are we done? No! And today, CJ and 30 of his OCT buddies are headed to a parade in Gonzales, Texas to spread the word. Because this is Texas, where the state bird is a revolver, OCT isn't even the only activist group open carrying today. 250 miles north, a second, totally unrelated group is using guns to draw attention to their cause. My friend Kobe Labee is embedding with them. So I know I'm meeting this group called Guerrilla Mainframe. I know that they're a group of black activists and that they open carry to protest police brutality. And I know that we're in the South, which has never had a problem with black guys with guns. I think you're gonna be totally fine. I wouldn't worry at all. Okay. You have, the, you have the confidence that only a white man with security can have. So I am here with Mr. Kobe Labee, who is both performer and writer on Clapper. What is Gorilla Mainframe? Uh, so Gorilla Mainframe is um, a group of black activists based in Texas, and uh, they do a bunch of things. They do a bunch of uh, community programs um, in their sort of working class black community in, in Dallas. But the thing they're most uh, known for are these sort of brash, confrontational, militant, open carry protests against police brutality. So um, if you don't know what some of those phrases mean, they take big, conspicuous guns out in public and 
protest uh, the unjust killing of black people by police. And so the, there's sort of a militant uh, aesthetic to it. So it's a lot of, it, picture the Black Panthers, picture, you know, military fatigues and black gloves and, you know, sort of loud, um, uh, very sort of direct confrontational chanting. Um, that's sort of their, their style of protest. I think this might be them. You got a second now? All right. Yeah, yeah, this is right. time. Awesome. But those aren't yeah. loaded, right? Huh? Those aren't loaded. No, they are loaded. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're loaded and rocking ready. Great. What specifically were they protesting that day? So specifically, they were protesting the death of a, a gentleman named Botham Jean, um, who was shot to death in his own home by an off-duty police officer. Um, so a woman named Amber Geiger is uh, an off-duty police officer, lived in the same building as Botham Jean, and went into Botham Jean's apartment. Um, and her story is that she believed it was her own apartment. She walked into Botham Jean's apartment, saw a man there um, that she believed to be a burglar, um, and shot him uh, with her uh, weapon. And he died. Uh, it's you know, an absolutely insane story. It's an insane story, yeah. So she's, um, you know, she's a white and an off-duty police officer. He's a black man in line with a lot of other unjust, uh, you know, killings of unarmed black people. This is a, was a particularly egregious one because, this, you know, a dude's just sitting on his own couch, you know. So this was a protest uh, about her prosecution and what she was charged with and what she wasn't charged with and more, more broadly raising awareness about that killing and this uh, the sort of epidemic of, uh, you know, unjust killings of, of people of color by the police. We now have two police cruisers behind us. No, three. Sorry, we have three police cruisers behind us. One of the things that makes me a little nervous, right, is that obviously you're going to protest the unjust killing of black people, so you know they sometimes unjustly kill black people, right? right. Uh, there is one right there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think he admiring my, my comrade. Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a glower of admiration. Right. Over there, right. is that what that is? Yeah. yeah. You look pretty content up yeah. there, so. Yeah. The reason um, Rakim, who's the leader of Guerrilla Mainframe, ended up in as a, a national, a figure in the national news at all was because he was uh, detained for a number of months uh, uh, as a result of him being investigated under what's called the Black Identity Extremist designation, which is a very shadowy new designation that the FBI created to monitor quote unquote black identity extremists, which is a nebulously defined, possibly non-existent thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that uh, gives the FBI a mandate to uh, follow black activists that they are concerned about for whatever reason. And that's distressing to a lot of people in the, a lot of people that care about, uh, you know, civil rights uh, because of, you know, COINTELPRO. There's a long history of the FBI uh, doing very troubling monitoring of black activists. You know, the FBI famously, uh, you know, monitored M Martin Luther King, you know, uh, is uh, allegedly sent him and a number of other activists uh, uh, letters trying to get them to stop their work, encouraging them to kill themselves. You know, there's a very troubling history of law enforcement and the FBI specifically monitoring black activists and uh, trying to make bad things happen to black activists, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's the sort of historical backdrop of this. And then, you know, in 2017, we see this black identity extremist program pop on the scene. We can't really get much context on it. There's no, for example, there's no equivalent white identity extremist program mm -hmm. to cover, you know, the white supremacists um, and the, you know, anti-Semitic violence. There's no, there's no uh, equivalent program to, to look at that kind of extremism. But for some reason, black identity identity extremism is something that the FBI believes or certain parties of the FBI believe needs to be monitored in this extreme way. Anyway, um, that's the backdrop of this. And Rakim is believed to be uh, the first person
person who's been detained under this uh, black identity extremist designation. And particularly why he was on the FBI's radar is he's made a number of very inflammatory, very offensive remarks about law enforcement and the death of law enforcement officers um, on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, it's explicitly said in his uh, his trial that the reason he ended up on law enforcement's radar was because of these things. Um, specifically, uh, an FBI, This is and this isn't a bit, uh, the, the FBI officer that first flagged him found out about him from Alex Jones. Uh, so the FBI officer watches InfoWars and saw InfoWars cover not even Rakim's group, but another group of black activists marching around. And you can imagine the InfoWars coverage of this, right? And <laughs> well, I, yeah, I can, we, we, we watched a lot of that. We, we spent a lot of time with that, that fine gentleman, right? But so this is, that, that's the sort of level of thinking that mm-hmm. uh, sort of is, is going into this. At least that's the, the criticism of it, right? So anyway, this guy ends up in jail. Rakim ends up in jail for five months, um, held without, denied parole effectively. Ultimately, the charges are dismissed. The judge is effectively like, this is nonsense. You can't jail a person because of things they said on Facebook. And uh, he was set free. But the coverage of that obviously caused a lot of consternation, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the, across uh, the, everybody that cares about civil rights. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the background of this. Anyway, we were interested in that group, uh, that particular treatment under the black identity extremist designation, what their deal is generally, their relationship to gun rights, because um, a black militant group like this has a different relationship to gun rights than a lot of other progressive groups. Mm-hmm. The difficulty about trying to tell the story of Rakim and Grill mainframe quickly is ultimately, I think, a difficulty we ran into on this show, which yeah. is that some of the statements that, that Rakim and Grill mainframe have made are so inflammatory that there is going to be a certain segment of the population that just shuts down in, in response to them. Mm-hmm. And um, and m- the, one of my concerns about trying to do that was tr- trying to unpack that uh, in uh, the the sort of with the detail and care that it deserves to be unpacked, and and to to my sensibility, to sort of get people through uh, the the discomfort with that. And to be clear, with this kind of militant rhetoric, that discomfort is part of the point. The headlines with Rakim, mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so or not, focused on the rhetoric that was there mm-hmm. to get atten- uh, get attention. That talked about killing police uh, in a in a flippant manner, mm-hmm. laugh my ass off, or LMAO. I remember was one of the things that that mm-hmm. stood out there, and so. I recall at the beginning part, it was like, oh, it's it's tough. As we're choosing things to put on television, is this the kind of thing? Are we um, signal boosting a group that is more problematic than it is mm-hmm. helpful? I, I remember that being part of the early discussions we had there. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, as this story evolved, we did find this day where they were having the protest. The detail that seemed uh, unique in a fun way in was on that same day they were having that protest, another group was having a protest also in Texas, mm-hmm. also using uh, an open carry protest. Mm-hmm. Specifically, their protest was to bring attention to open carrying uh, and more specifically constitutional carry. And that group was uh, Open Carry Texas, a group uh, run by C.J. Grisham. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are there to normalize the idea of brandishing a weapon in Texas. They had some success a couple of years ago. Um, Texas uh, is an open carry state, mm-hmm. and it's part of the efforts that they had uh, had taken to make it an open carry state. What they are pushing for, they're, they're consistently pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun mm-hmm. rights, and there's smaller laws that they're consistently there. And CJ is often at the, the state building mm-hmm. attempting to, to push forward on that. But what they were doing there was a thing called constitutional carry, mm-hmm. Which essentially is the rights. The Constitution gives you the right to have a gun and to carry a gun, and they don't want those extra steps uh, 
to open carry. Once you get a gun, you should be able to open carry. It was essentially what they were. They were out in Gonzales, Texas, with their guns, trying to get people to feel comfortable with guns and to support the idea of constitutional carry. And and just to go back to the sort of origination phase of this, one of the one of the reasons that. Uh, Lucy was so excited about uh, Open Carry Texas specifically was because their Open Carry Texas is quite extreme too in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the ways they're extreme is they they have the, their leader C.J. Grisham has also made a lot of inflammatory, violent statements yes. about police in the in a slightly different context, more about you know the Bundys basically about you know like the, you know cops coming for you know if, if anyone if anyone messes with my cattle rights I'll kill them yeah. <laughs> you know kind yeah. of things you know I'm not that that's not a direct quote I just you know <laughs> that's uh, just the, your own yeah, personal belief. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Big cattle you know, rights uh, guy. Grazing. What if grazing rights aren't a thing? Kobe, we don't have time. Why do we? I'm. It's Kobe, a this is. It's a soapbox. You and your grazing you know? rights soapbox. Uh, <laughs> but it is true. What we started to find. Yeah. So CJ is is a controversial figure. He he was uh, has been arrested multiple times. He is often an aggressor. In 2018, CJ and OCT had a standoff with police in Almost Park, Texas. So you got an AR-15 because a man is lawfully carrying. No, we're not getting on the ground. Get on the ground. We're not getting on the ground. Get on the ground. I'm not going to say it again. I'm not doing anything. Get on the ground. Hey, look at that This event was remarkable because no one got killed. And because in response to CJ's provocation, Almost Park repealed their gun ordinance. It was a tense situation. They asked you to get down, you didn't get down. What do you think would have happened if you were black and that situation arose? It happens to white people, it happens to black people. When it happens to a black person, they get a lot of credit, they get a lot of attention for it. But when it happens to a white guy, we don't get the same kind of attention. It's not a black, black or white thing. I don't think black people are getting credit for dying at the hands of police. That's not exactly a credit they're trying to no, no, put on their IMDb page. And as you look into it, he has said some very similar things uh, aimed at cops online, on Facebook. And, and hasn't been persecuted in the same way for those statements, hasn't mm -hmm. been jailed for those statements. And, and you know, one of the ambitions with this episode is, is you're trying to show you know, different treatment under the law and you're trying to show, uh, you know, what essentially is you're trying to pin down unconscious bias and the way it it attacks, it turns into actual violence in mm -hmm. communities and actual violations of civil rights. It's sometimes hard to, to prove <laughs> and sometimes hard to see real concrete evidence of. And one of the things we liked about this contrast was, uh, and, and that we thought we could do in this format that we can't necessarily do with the opposition, was in in showing someone who has also made violent anti-police statements but not faced some of the same ramifications, uh, it's easier, theoretically at least, it makes, uh, m it gives some context for people that are shut down by the violent rhetoric as such. Mm -hmm. um, it gives some context to them for why, even if you find that rhetoric offensive, even if you find that rhetoric a non-starter, the, the treatment of, you know, Rakim specifically around this rhetoric is a broader civil rights problem that we should all be concerned about mm -hmm. and emblematic of, uh, you know, the, the various disproportionate treatments under the law of which killing unarmed people is, is just one, mm -hmm. you know, horrific example. And I think one of the yeah. first things we wanted to do with this, just because of this this day, it gave us a focal point to like, let's go and see what experientially can happen. Uh, yeah. What were your expectations going down to Dallas uh, to uh, an, essentially an open carry protest? Um, yeah, You're well, not a big I, guns guy. I'm not a big guns guy. So there's there's some jokes early in the episode and when I'm at the gun range. Uh, so I shoot a gun for the first time in this episode. So you should probably watch it if you haven't. <laughs> hello, hello. So this is my first time. Just relax, be comfortable. Okay. You'll be good to go, man. Would you like to go? Let's 
Come on. Okay. So now do a slow, steady squeeze and breathe out as you're coming towards the end. Goddamn. It feels like I f***ing summoned lightning. <laughs> yes. One of the things that's wild about it is just the physical, the physical thing you do, which is just this little finger pull, you know? That's what you call it, right? It's finger, finger pull. Yeah, term? you're a real pro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. what do you do that finger yeah. pull? I'm good, at, I'm good at body stuff. I'm an athlete. Yeah, yeah. that was Clint Eastwood um, often yeah, talks cool, cool, about, cool. like, yeah. the finger pull. Yeah, right? totally, like, exactly. I remember yeah. those classic moments, those, yeah. those classic finger pull lines. Yeah, I think my career from here is going to be as an action star. We don't need to get into it. Um, <laughs> I don't think but, you will. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but that, it's the reaction you get from the weapon is so wildly disproportionate to the thing you do um, that that's, uh, it's a very surreal experience in that yeah. way, I found, you know. Um, Which, yeah, um, I think actually that's a that's a uh, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I think that's for a lot of people that is the draw that right that you have that access to that power, and yeah. for a lot of people also that is the giant fear of like yeah. I should have by no means should I whatever you can do to put that kind of power because whether or not you trust yourself with with that amount of power. And and I think that that's the the symbolism of that is not lost on me in the context of this episode because I think one of the you know what you have is you have two groups very much interested in the the personal power mm -hmm. and the empowerment and the masculinity you know uh, traditionally defined that uh, that comes from wielding that from physically having that and from being seen having that and and for gorilla mainframe uh, I, I think that's a it's a it's a powerful antidote to the the lack of agency that they're experiencing in their community if you can be in your own home and a police officer can walk in and just shoot you to death while you're sitting in your own in your own house you know if that's if that's the level of agency you have having a a tool or a symbol that is the opposite of that powerlessness there's a there's a there's a seduction to that that I that I understand that fills a hole that I think is it's reasonable to want filled mm -hmm. and then I think with a lot of you know sort of uh you know run of the mill gun rights guys it's about uh, you know, it's a little more cosplay. Like you have a great joke in the episode where you call call one of the guys John Wick. You know, and I, I think that's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's a fantasy about a kind of you know masculine you know prowess that maybe they don't feel in other respects in their life, or that they they that is is satisfying to imagine being the hero, the protector, the savior. For sure. And it's like, but but the difference between wanting that kind of power because it sort of feels good and scratches an itch in your broken masculinity is very different than wanting that kind of power because you're afraid for your life and feel powerlessness. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I would think, um, well said. I definitely <laughs> the experience that I had when I was out in Gonzales with the open carry uh, group. There was probably about 30 or so uh, people who were open carrying of all ages, even down to, I believe, a 13-year-old who was open carrying. What are you carrying? I don't know the specific number. I know it's an AR. I believe it's an AR-15. It's an AR-15. Do you like open-end carrying? Uh, yes. Why is that? It's just like if we don't have any open carry, if we don't get to have our guns, then what happens is that there's going to be... Just, just gonna be chaos. Like we're not gonna be able to protect ourselves. How much practice do you have on that thing? I don't have practice right now. I'm just open and carrying it. I feel responsible for protecting others because I'm the one that could provide protection with the gun. That's a lot of responsibility for you. You're 13. Yeah. Is that good for you guys? A 13-year-old carrying an AR-15? He's probably a better shot than I am. Well, that's not true. Not many people are better shots than I am. I think for me, the issue that I always get caught up on is like, there's the idea that I have a gun, 
this is my right to bring it in, they really take into effect how the gun does change speech and that situation. Mm -hmm. You're injecting a potential threat into a situation and you're limiting other people's ability to be free because you've injected the idea of violence sure. and you call yeah. it protection. And they, if you're, if you're not lucky enough to be one of the people who feels safe in that environment, that mm -hmm. person has the upper hand. I feel like that's often not reckoned with. At, at the same time, I will give like the arguments that feel most compelling to me with Open Carry Texas, mm -hmm. I do think are essentially libertarian uh, sure. arguments. And a lot of that is like, what the Second Amendment means, mm -hmm. and I have these rights, I don't want. They, they feel very anti-government. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to take anything away from me. Yeah. And I think we've talked a lot about this here. It's like, I think open carry, I, I, I think they're able to reckon with that what I deserve, but they have a hard time reckoning sometimes with like how that affects culture. But to them, that doesn't matter. Initially, I thought this piece was going to be, we're going to see what happens at two open carry. I think I was probably overly simplistic in my assumption going in. I was like, oh, two open carry groups in Texas? That feels like that's a Texas day. That's as Texas a day as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to go. I can go off on one. Kobe can go off on one. We can kind of tell this story yeah. to see, like, what is the reaction to these yeah. groups? And to be clear, they were happening at literally the same time. Yes. It was like the same morning at the same time. There's a there's a shot in the episode of us FaceTiming with each other, which mm -hmm. is, we didn't cheat. That's real. That's that real. happened, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, and... It was. It, I think like it felt like a social experiment. Yeah. I think also at that point in the show, it was like I think let's let's go without a whole lot of expectation of what we're getting back. And I was just and I think you know one of the things we were very curious about was just to watch the experience of a bunch of black guys walking around with guns and a bunch of white guys walking around yep. with guns and just see how they're treated and see what the temperature feels like, uh, you know, in the room as it were walking around with those groups. We really wanted to see what what it was like for these two groups, you know, black group and white group walking around with guns. And when we say guns, we mean guns, right? You the know? big gun. There, 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 are, there, there were some yeah. guns on the hip, but it's yeah. mostly giant giant military style weapons. Yeah, these these are long guns. There's no missing these guns, you know, and it's a it's a it's a gaggle of these people, which is what you call that's a technical term for a group. It's of a gaggle of guns. guns. It's a gaggle yes, of guns. Yes. You know. uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know with you know with Gorilla Mainframe they're they're you know they're they're marching in formation. It's you know, you know, 20, 30 folks walking around with uh, with weapons, you know, and Open Carry Texas, probably a little smaller than that, 15, 10, 15, 20 guys? How about, I'd say 15 yeah, to 15 20. Guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it fluctuated. Yeah. And I think, like, they also had big guns. I think their their purpose there was this normalization. And so yeah. they had those guns. They wanted to be seen with those guns. Yeah. They had guns and flyers. And C.J. Grisham, who is the leader, like, C.J. is very... Um, Congenial, he's like or genial, congenial, genial. G I think congenial is like a disease. Oh, is he con con yeah. con this congenital? Conge he's, congenital is he's a disease. Genital, yeah. Is he genital? He's genital. <laughs> CJ's genital. Let's go with that. Yeah, uh, yeah you yeah. know, this is my genital friend over yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> He, but his, his goal was to be as friendly as possible. Uh -huh. And so he's handing out flyers with a big old gun on his back um, saying like, oh, hi, ma'am. Hi, ma'am. We're here to talk about uh, constitutional carry. Take this flyer. Like to, to, to be a presence, but to almost blend into the background, uh, which was uh, very different than the uh, the way in which Gorilla Mainframe was hoping to affect the group. Yeah, so it's uh, it's really interesting with Gorilla with Almost everything you talk about with Gorilla Mainframe, you have to talk about different audiences mm -hmm. because there is this one audience, which is the black community they come from, which is you know the uh, working class community, uh, working class predominantly black community, uh, faces this kind of police violence regularly. 
um, has a number of other very legitimate complaints about the way structural racism has impacted their community. Um, And so you have to talk about that audience. And then separately, you have to talk about the uh, what I would call a white mainstream audience, uh, which has a different reaction to some of these signifiers. So the 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 guerrilla mainframe's posture is, I would say, confrontational, mm-hmm. right? And but the question is, what are they confronting, right? And and what they are confronting is a paradigm that lets black people get killed in their own homes, right? And even though that posture is confrontational to something, different audiences read that differently. Mm-hmm. So when we were walking through that working class black community, it doesn't feel confrontational. It feels actually quite warm and friendly and known. And so we get black power signs. So that kind of confrontation, even though the posture is an antagonistic posture, it's a confrontational posture, how that's received by the audience is as empowering and as um, uh, nourishing because the the experience is like, oh, thank God, someone is is expressing how we feel Mm -hmm. in the face of this violence. And I have to say for me personally, I was surprised, I expected to be mostly afraid (laughs) because of police retribution. My fear was, I'm I'm afraid to be a black person walking around in general, Mm -hmm. you know, because of of this kind of police violence. I'm certainly afraid to do it when we're black guys with guns. Like if my cell phone can be perceived as a gun and I can be shot to death, like if I'm around actual guns, that's legitimately frightening to me. So I was legitimately afraid walking in. And what I was surprised by in the working class black community was how nourishing it felt to have this posture of of confronting uh, the system that makes me feel afraid walking around like that all the time, right? Because those, and I think that's what that community responded to. And, you know, you can you can say what you want about the effectiveness of that protest. You can say what you want about the the positivity of guns being out in public at all. But I, I it was strike, it was absolutely striking to me how personally and also in the community that posture felt like a, 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 a deeply nourishing counterpoint to the sort of the, the sort of pressure and persecution that 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 community and, and I personally mm-hmm. feel all the time. So that's sort of one audience, right? And then then uh, functionally what happens, we started in this working class black community and then crossed over and we're at the UT Oklahoma football game, <laughs> which is a, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, like a Saturday. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. How do we get this? How do we make it more Texas? Yeah. yeah. So it's a bunch of, you know, it's a bunch of, you know, uh, I was about to call them good old boys. Is that offensive? Is that like a slur against That's offensive to my people. I, I come from I a long know. line of good old uh, boys. Yeah. <laughs> so forgive me. I uh, apologize. I apologize to the South, broadly speaking. Uh, but uh, the the you know it's well, a, they yeah, knew where they're walking it's fr- into. Yeah, it's, it's frat boys, right? Yeah. It's like one of the things that's incredibly hard to capture on camera. Um, uh, is uh, and I think is I think is also difficult to communicate to people who don't have this experience in one axis of their life or other. But the 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 discomfort stepping outside of your place mm-hmm. is that when you are being uppity, like there's a particular way you get regarded as a black person when you're uppity, right? Which is that if you, if I walk into uh, a place that's too expensive or if I walk into a, pl- a particularly white place, there is a, a tension that comes into the air of, of the way I'm regarded until I can like offer a couple of signifiers that say, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm not like a black guy who wandered in here. I'm like a middle-class black guy who like went to an Ivy League school and like has money and can like talk good. <laughs> you know, like there, there's a certain, the, the, the sort of texture of that discomfort is, is very difficult to 
explain if you're not familiar with it, right? And there's violence on the back of that too. There's, there's, you know, there's a, uh, you know, we're coming off a, a, you know, more than a century of domestic terrorism in terms of black people being afraid about how being uppity in that way and being in communities they're not supposed to be and asserting power and agency that they're not supposed to have can literally be a death sentence, right? And so that texture is still in the culture. So that's a long way of saying that there's one experience that I was expecting to have of, you know, just being with guns and people being uncomfortable around guns. And I think we both had that experience and saw that in different ways. People in Texas find that banal. People in Texas find that uncomfortable. But there's a whole other texture to this experience once we've crossed over into the white community, which is just watching a, a group of, of middle-class white people be uncomfortable at black people taking a power and an agency that they're not comfortable with them having. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? I think so, yeah. And it's a, it's a really difficult experience. How, how, how does that yeah. show itself? How, how do you become aware of that? So, so I'll say, I'll give you an example, right? Which is that, and I think this is an example, I think we will have different perspectives on this in terms of how it showed up on the tape, which is the, there's that gentleman, I think he's, I think he's still in this cut, um, who's like, you know, you, we didn't used to see that. Like, the, the guy who's like, we didn't used to see that back in, in my day, right? Uh, do you know what this is? I have no idea. I don't know, but it makes you uncomfortable, don't it? It's not like the America I grew up in for the last 60, 63 years, I promise you. Yeah, no, I, I definitely tell you that. We were, we were much more separated before, for sure. Right. Yeah. I made a segregation joke. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I'm classy. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I would go dick joke there. It would have been out of place. Know, different yeah. strokes. Yeah, yeah, we each yeah. have different strong suits. He's noticing something, and to him, it's like, this is just not how it should be. Yeah. Which is uh, I, probably the most kind reading of that is an unconscious bias, and probably the most... Uh, Point of reading is just a uh, a conscious bias. So yeah, and so a, a, a cleaner example is actually something we cut, and and I don't think it was a bad decision to cut this, but Thank there you. was uh, there was a, <laughs> there were a group of kids, um, there were a group of of teenagers who I interviewed and um, on camera, and I was like, are you comfortable with the group that you just saw go past? And they're like, oh yeah, no problem, whatever, like you know, look, or no, this is what it was. They pretended they didn't see them. Right. So they were like, do you remember? I don't know if you remember these I guys. Do. And I was I was pretty hard on them in the interview. And and I think too, I know there was one, you know, one of our one of our white colleagues was like, I don't, I think you're being too hard on them. And 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 you know, whatever, whatever in terms of in terms of what showed up on camera, but but they were talking about the group when we walked up. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about calling the police on them when they walked up, when I walked up. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. And so and so I heard that and I was like, and so I was probing those, I was like, Motherfuckers, I just heard you. <laughs> I just heard you talking about calling the police on them. They're like, oh no, man, I don't even see it. I don't even see it. You know? And and this is the sort of the double speak that that I think you, you, you I, I have a particular, you know, I'm I'm attuned to in a different way just because of because of my experience with this stuff, right? And and it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to um, and so that, that's, it's a bit of a roar, that, that, an experience like that is a bit of a roar shock, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I, I, you know, in all the, all the nonverbal, you know, behavior that's coming at me mm-hmm. <laughs> from people all the time. And it's like, there's all these studies about how so much communication is not about language and what you're literally saying, but you're like the vibe you're sending out, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like how you, it's like why everybody thinks we're so charming. It's not our words, it's our energy, Thank you. Uh, um, you know, but there, but there's the nonverbal energy I'm getting from that context mm-hmm. is so deeply hostile and deeply uncomfortable in a way that is very hard to um, communicate it to people that aren't attenuated to hear that discomfort is danger. 
Does that make sense? Because when I when I feel that discomfort in a group of white people, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> sure. I'm like, I I need to be aware because I am in trouble. Because like that level of like concern from a police officer is something that could kill me. That level of concern is going to get the police called on me. That level of concern is going to get me into a conflict in my nice middle class restaurant that I'm in. You know. Right. And like, and so I'm. You know, it's perhaps a hyper awareness to it, but but it is. That, that discomfort is a real thing, and that's very much what we got when we crossed over into that white community. That's, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I guess my my thought in that is that's the that's the that's also the intended response, correct? Sure. So, like, yeah. as, is that a successful form of protest in the fact that you are able to see that, in the fact that you have... You have you have uh, some white people going to a football game and are like, holy shit, what is this? What is this? And then they, they are forced to have that conversation then. Yeah. Like... No matter what, if I'm going to a football game and a bunch of people are coming up with guns, yeah. I'm going to talk about it. And then if a camera comes up to me, I'm going to probably be like, oh, I wasn't talking about it. Now, I don't doubt that there's a giant racial component there, yeah. of course. Um, but I'm wondering, like, is that how that situation is going to play out? I think it's as much about, you know, anti, angry anti-police chants and a bunch of, you know, loud black guys being loud and direct and confrontational and black as it is the the, the, the weapons on their backs. In terms of whether or not that's successful, I think it's a really good question. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's 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 an audience question, right? So there's the one, the one conversation about it being nourishing to a community that feels, you know, stepped on. And then there's a conversation about, okay, well, what are we doing with this kind of rhetoric. One of the functions of this kind of militant posturing rhetorically is to say, okay, well, if, if you are comfortable with this kind of violence being done to us, what do you feel? Like, come with me on the empathetic exercise of imagining if this kind of violence came back to you and your community. And the, the level of discomfort that uh, white people feel when they hear somebody like Rakim talk so cavalierly about the death of white police officers, that level of discomfort is the level of discomfort a mainstream white audience should feel every single time they hear about a black person being killed. And and I, I think the criticism, the most generous, sophisticated reading of this vocabulary of protest is that, okay, well, obviously, nonviolent protests, Black Lives Matter, you know, all these other modes of trying to communicate how fundamentally, viscerally unjust the situation we're in, all of that's not really getting the, the job done, you know? And so, I am going to try to reflect back the kind of violence we are experiencing at you and see if that that shakes anything. Mm-hmm. And 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 so to your point, it, it is designed to make people, I think, uncomfortable. And I think the question is whether or not, is what we then do with that discomfort, what, what does that discomfort mean? And do I have a similar level of discomfort about the injustices they're complaining about? The argument that you make is, I think, an incredible argument. And I think like, what you're asking for is an engagement with a community, uh, a, a white community that's not engaging with a community that is under duress, that is feeling this kind of stress, as mm-hmm. has felt this kind of uh, violence for a hundred years. But the articulation of that in the moment is, obviously it's the guns to grab attention. Mm-hmm. It is chance. It's chance. It's, it's oink, oink, bang, bang. Like, mm-hmm. like yep. the chants are directed at police. Yeah, that's and, about killing police. At 100%. Chant about killing police. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like you have, there are definitely people on the right, there are people who are very critical of Gorilla Mainframe. Totally, and yeah. Specifically because of their tactics, mm-hmm. because of um, the lines that they cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and again, this is what the conversations that we were having. Like, when you are there and you're seeing that happen and you're having that emotional journey to see how people are reacting mm-hmm. to that. Are you frustrated with the means that they're using to elicit that reaction? Or do you find this reaction, 
I, I understand that it's a reaction out of necessity, but is it, uh, how comfortable are you with that form of protest? I, um, it, it's, it's difficult to, I, I have my ambivalence about it, right? Like I, I don't, I, I have my ambivalence about it. I think, but my sort of first order, before I can engage with my own personal ambivalence about it, um, I have sort of first and foremost the work of asking other people, asking white people effectively to engage with it honestly. Um, and and it's one of the frustrations about working on this piece, honestly, is that is that I do have I do have real questions about this group specifically, and I do have real questions about whether or not this mode of protest moves the needle in a positive way. You know, same questions I had about the Black Panther Party. You know, and and you know, militant Mark Garvey militant groups on back through the, the history of, of black people. But but the sort of but again, that, to me, that's like a second order problem, mm-hmm. right? Because the 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 first order problem is asking for meaningful engagement with the thing that it is. And, and, I, and I find that, um, and, and, I, and I found working on this piece, that, that the discomfort that is produced by the rhetoric is so loud that uh, it, 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 shuts, it shuts white people down, <laughs> you know? And but is, is the actions, are they disqualified? In, in what sense? Well, I think- It's, li- it's, it's language, no, it's language. You know what I mean? Like, but, it's, but, it's, but at yeah. some point, somebody shuts yeah. off, and, mm-hmm. and we're aware of when you push something, so somebody shuts off, and and I I, I think the reticence that you have, if people yeah. hear oink oink bang bang, if you hear something online that is uh, making fun of police officers who are dead and their families, and you challenge Kim on that, uh, if you if is that a line that is crossed at which point you are not going to be heard because you have crossed the line that now delegitimizes the argument that you have it's a, it's a larger conversation about decorum in politics right which is that about decorum you know and mm-hmm. and propriety and there are communities that that feel like they don't have the luxury of being polite because they're dying I do have concerns and I wish I often wish groups like this and I very much include the Black Panther Party in this you know were more thoughtful and deliberate about how this kind of confrontational messaging can can be useful and can be counterproductive mm-hmm. like I think being there's a real I always, I almost always want groups like this to be a little more sophisticated with how they wield the powerful tools that they're wielding. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's again, that's like that's let's 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 shut the door and have that conversation separately because that's that's a that's a question of of that that's to me that's an abdication of responsibility as a mainstream audience and and it's a it's an abdication of responsibility as white listeners to say okay, well, you haven't packaged this for me in a way that makes me comfortable. Therefore, I have the I have permission to keep shutting the door on this. It's a less conservative version of the conversation about Kaepernick and kneeling, which is like, oh, well, yeah, I get that police brutality is a thing you want to talk about, but the way you're doing it, the nature of this protest is, you know, turns me off, so I'm not really going to engage with the substance of your criticism because the manner of your speech is shutting me down. It's it's a similar criticism, right? But I would say, I remember watching your interview with Rakim, and I think we even watched this together, and I think, like, you ask him. You ask him very clearly. You yeah, remember, yeah. I mean, you you ask him about his um, his Facebook posts, mm-hmm. and and you say like these police officers were killed mm-hmm. in Dallas, and you said L M A O smiley face, mm-hmm. uh, and Rakim was like, oh yeah, yeah, I laughed, I laughed. Like Rakim owned it, and he was joyous at a few moments. And for me, I'm like, F- this guy. Do you stand by those statements? <laughs> 
I didn't say those officers as an individual deserve what they got. I said the police department deserved that. So just to be clear, I'm pretty sure the exact quote is they deserve what they got. And I think it was LMAO afterwards. Yes, and I was laughing. Okay. And I'm still laughing today. Yeah. Just like they're laughing at me, right? Yeah. Because as a black person, when you hear is Trayvon Martin, is Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, eventually at some point it becomes frustrating. How can you then turn around and celebrate other people going through the pain of losing people that they love? Just, as, just like America celebrated Hiroshima and Nagasaki <laughs> after Pearl Harbor. You know, it's just, you guys get to agree for a change. Do you have any intention of doing something like what he did? No. Killing police officers is not gonna stop police brutality. If anything, it's gonna encourage it. Mm -hmm. You know- I, Lucas, couldn't you say the same thing about your statements though? I wanna be provocative enough to get their attention. Okay. I was like, this negates everything he did up until this point. And, 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 and also I'm like, I feel weird about putting this guy on television because yep. of that aggressive stance. Um, also, I feel protective because I do think I agree with the things that you're saying and mm -hmm. the the attention that they're bringing. But I'm like, this is delegitimizing all the stuff he did before. Like, in order to try to amplify the actual story, which at that point to me felt like drawing attention to police violence against African-American communities, specifically in Texas. It's like, you have a guy who's laughing about uh, cops getting killed. I'm like, guess what the story is going to be? If... The story's gonna be the guy who's laughing at cops getting killed. We want it to be about something else. We can't amplify that part of that story. It's, it's interesting, and I'm, I appreciate your, you know, bringing up that you watching it for the first time because I was, I was really struck by that. It was really that was a, a, a striking moment just in the process of making that for for me because I, I, I've never seen you react so negatively to an interview subject before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As I, you, you really were like quite. My experience of it was that you were really quite reviled by that and really quite disgusted by that in a way that I think is, you know, is, uh, it's, it's your personal reaction and is, and is a very appropriate in that, in that respect. Uh, but I remember being su very surprised by that because I don't have, you know, it's like I, I challenge him on in the interview. I find, I, I, I find those statements at the very least clumsy, you know, and at the very most like immoral, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, but, but they don't elicit the same, uh, uh, f real like repulsion, you mm -hmm. know, for me, and 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 I do think that is a is a racialized difference, mm -hmm. um, it, it, because there is, you know, and this is not this is not a a, a you personally thing. This is just the fucking culture, you know, of like they're like black people are scary in this culture. And I think that part of why that reaction for, for not just you, for a couple other, the, the white writers on the show was so, uh, had such a negative reaction to that was because of the, 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 the racial coding of that language coming out of the mouth of a black guy. And, uh, and part of, and that's why I say that, you know, all of, all, uh, I, so I, in, in, in the situation that pivots me into is not being able to engage with my own ambivalence about it because mm -hmm. it's like, oh shit, like I, like, I, I get that. I get that reaction. And then I also get why that kind of language is totally banal and just an NWA album. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's just, there's a long, there's a long history in pop culture of like people saying that kind of stuff where it's just, it's just a kind of rhetorical posturing sure. from a community that's just like beat up by, beat up by the cops. And just like, it's like, well, no, 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 not you, you, you know, it's just something pedestrian about it as well, mm -hmm. you know? And, and the fact that it reads as really dangerous you know, and reads as really disquieting and reads as a real earnest 
engagement and endorsement of that kind of violence, I, I do think is is racialized, right? And I don't think it's about the skill of us as, as storytellers to tell that tell that story, but I think it's about. Uh, and I think this is a really difficult thing. It's a more difficult thing for for you than me in some ways. But to 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 engage honestly with that discomfort, you know, and to tell that to tell the story of that discomfort, mm-hmm. which is your honest reaction to it, while also telling the story of you know some of my experience of it, which is is where the discomfort is not the headline. Uh, the discomfort of that language and that kind of violent rhetoric is not the headline. The discomfort is, look what this particular group's organic response to the other violence they're suffering is, right? And and the 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 most elite version of this story is being able to tell both of those experiences at the same time, you know. Um, and that's it's super hard. Mm-hmm. It's super hard, you know. Well, I think what was interesting too in in putting this together, uh, like functionally, the way you make television is you. <laughs> you have these stories and you have to edit them down and you pick the yeah. uh, the the things in which to that represents the experience that you had and mm-hmm. you put them in an order and we got an interesting conversation uh, and mm-hmm. debate about if we're representing them correctly right yeah. and yeah. I think like this got down it was it got into the minutiae it got into sure. uh, yeah. to the, like the music choices we were using to address we them yep. how we mm-hmm. underscore them mm-hmm. uh, like, like the, or, or we introduce them in right. you know like whether or not we can show CJ riding on a bike and being playful whether mm-hmm. or not you know like there, we, had, we had a bunch of discussions yeah. you know yeah. and I'll admit like it's honestly like we had four writers you're the only black writer mm-hmm. uh, and I, was, I think like I was aware you're yeah, aware yeah. but I think like I probably wasn't yeah. I think that is unfair as somebody who's like you're you're also an actor in this you're you you have you wear many hats you're doing a lot of things there you're like you've written on all these episodes on the one you're in and all of that but you're also representing the the only voice in the room who sees it from that perspective and I do think like I saw my own ignorance in that discussion but I do yeah. think it's an important conversation to have and it's one that I don't know if I would have had without being challenged I mean, yeah, and, and I appreciate. Listen, I, pr- I appreciate because I was. We we had some pretty, we had some tense discussions about this mm-hmm. at different points, you know. And I appreciate your being. You were really receptive to 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 my perspective on it. The thing that's difficult, you know, and I've said this in different ways at, at uh, you know, e- even in this conversation. But the situation it puts me in is I don't have the luxury of my own ambivalence because I end up fighting for the 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 sort of most favorable you know view of these subjects and these groups because it's it's underrepresented in the room. You know, and and it's 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 what it is. It's it's what you know. It's the that's the role I ended up taking on this particular conversation. It's tricky. It's a tricky situation to be in. You know. You know. It's that's that's what it. That's what's what that's what it was. That's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Kobe, uh, I love talking to you about this stuff, and I feel like this was a uh, this was really a learning experience. This was a tough episode to work on. Um, I really respect what you do and what you bring to it, and I think like. <laughs> Thank you for trying to keep me honest. Trin, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. <laughs> um, I, oh, shit, you were supposed to... Okay, oh, right, shit, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I just got into it. If you like listening to this podcast, you're going to like watching it even more. So go check out Klepper. It's on all of your devices, including your television. Go check it out. Thank you for listening. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.